Good morning, baby Shane. Um, so do you know, do you know what is two weeks from to, uh, this Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. It, we, Lent is upon us. We just, we just finished, who, who finally put away their, their tree, their Christmas tree? What's that? Oh, it's Kara's birthday. Very good. You thought I was going there. It's Kara's birthday. Happy birthday, Kara. Um, so, it, you know, Lent uh, is, is a season of the church calendar that is um, uh, it's devoted to things like um, abstaining. It's a, it's, a, it's a season of pausing. It's a season of maybe discipline. It's a season of confession. Um, so it's kind of the season, we'll talk a little bit more about this over the weeks, but uh, it's, a, it's a season where um, the, the, you might do things a little differently than you normally would do. Um, and so I just would encourage you to be thinking about that over the next two weeks, about what God might have for you uh, during this Lenten season. Uh, for me, um, I've decided, and I say it to you now, so that way I have to do it, um, I've decided to uh, blog during this Lent. Uh, and I'm going to blog uh, through Fleming Rutledge's book, uh, The Crucifixion. If anybody's interested in deep waters, and um, uh, Fleming had the, uh, uh, I have the opportunity to hear Fleming, some of you did as well, at Jason Poling's ordination a few years back. And she's really incredible. And this work is, is kind of her life's work, this book. And um, uh, I keep seeing incredible things about it. And I've read a few chapters, and I'm going, oh, yeah, something I've got to get to. So through this Lent, I've, I've committed to, um, to getting all the way through it, and I'm actually going to blog my way through it each chapter at a time. So I think there's, like, more than one a week, so I'm going to have to, like, do several at a, uh, during a week. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. So if anybody would be interested in joining me in that, uh, you're welcome to. But today, we are continuing in our series, Full Engagement. Um, Full Engagement is a series on the marks of what makes the church the church. Um, the was a problem that a lot of churches have, and we kind of got an opportunity a few uh, earlier this spring, a few of us to go down to Atlanta to a church leadership conference, and one of the things that they were talking about is how um, this concept of membership can somehow sometimes be something that's kind of unnecessary or just not very helpful when it comes to involvement in the life of the church. Because they found two things. A lot of churches have found this, and we've kind of found it at New Hope when we've stressed the idea of membership. First of all, that there are members who really aren't all that involved in the life of the church. And then there are people who are involved in the life of the church, rich, who really aren't members who've never signed on to become official members. So it just kind of seems like the term membership is a bit antiquated, and it's not something that's serving Christ's church worldwide, or at least nationwide right now. Um, but that being said, there are important marks of the people who have skin in the game, the people who, um, who would say, I'm all in. And this is kind of a series for at least us naming what does it mean to be all in, or what does it mean to be fully engaged. And today, um, and when we do that, actually, these are the four points that we've talked about. Uh, Number one, connect to a group. This principle that you can't grow spiritually without being connected relationally. Uh, What we're going to talk about today, serving on a team, joining a team to leverage your gifts and be a part of our mission. 
Um, number three, Dan Broadbar is going to be with us next week, uh, and he's going to talk about generosity and about the practice of generosity, financially supporting the church that you love. And then in week four, we're going to talk about this principle of invest and invite, meaning that we're going to invest in and invest and invite others to come and experience the life of our community. So today we're talking about Mark number two, serving on a team. And I love how these points, they kind of interconnect. Because last week we talked about this fundamental truth that Christianity is all about relationship. We said you can't grow spiritually without being connected relationally. It's about our relationship with God, of course, um, but it's also about our relationship with others. In fact, Jesus was pretty clear about the concept that you can't really be loving God well without loving other people well or serving them. And you really can't serve others without loving God well. And that might be a somewhat easy pill to swallow. You know, God wants you to love others. Or we might take it a step deeper and say that God loves you and he wants you to treat others with the same sort of radically outrageous, generous love that he has shown you. Again, it's not super complicated, but it is still fundamental to what it means to live out a Jesus way of life. So here in this second point, we're naming that someone who would be considered to be fully engaged in the life of Jesus' church would be serving on some capacity in that church. And I think we need to think about that on multiple levels. Uh, First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, that means that you are a part of the worldwide church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of Jesus followers all over the world. Jesus followers have been given a mission, no matter where they live on the planet, that they are to go and make disciples of every nation. It's important that we see that Jesus does not say, go and make Christians. No, he's not looking for members to join the Christian club. He's looking for disciples who will walk in step with the master and reflect his love into the world. In that light, Christianity is not a club you join. It is a way of life. It is a movement you join. So so Jesus' followers worldwide are all part of the same church. But for centuries now, we've also seen that the worldwide church also has local manifestations. There you go. New Hope Community Church is a local manifestation of the worldwide church. We consider ourselves to be non-denominational and independent from manifestations, from official manifestations of the church, but we can't fool ourselves, right? There has only ever been one church. When we read the Nicene Creed, we say that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one church blessed by God to be a blessing to others, which traces its roots all the way back through the centuries to a dozen disciples sitting on a hill with Jesus. Once we're grounded in that truth, we can begin to talk about what our particular role is to that worldwide mission. How is God calling us to be the church in and for Baltimore, Catonsville, Reichertstown? That phrase has gotten stuck in my soul over the past few months. The phrase that's been stuck in my soul over the past few months, New Hope, is this phrase, the culture 
of discipleship. If the worldwide purpose of the church is to make disciples, I see our purpose as cultivating a culture of discipleship that is both mature and dynamic. Or, as we sung this morning, deep and wide. We want to have our cookies and we want to eat them too. We want to cultivate an environment, especially on Sundays, where folks can come and experience an atmosphere of acceptance. This is why we use contemporary music. It's why I'm talking you down here in kind of casual clothes. We want you to come as you are. We, we want the real you. Uh, the only dress code that New Hope will ever have is please do. We want you to come with your doubts. We want you to come with your questions. We want you to be authentic because I hope that that's what you want from us. We want to love a visitor. We want to love visitors um, the way that they want to be loved. We want visitors to experience a community of real people, not superficial ones. And our hope is that when you hear about us talk, about the things that matter most to us, it matters that much more because trust has been established. And then as much as uh, time as it takes, our hope is that there eventually is no more, there comes a moment where there is eventually no more you and us, there is only we. That's wide. But like I said, we want to have our cookies and eat them too, which means that we also believe that God is calling us to depth. He's calling us to maturity in Christ. Cultivating a culture of discipleship means that we take growth and education and the disciplines of the Jesus way of life seriously. We hold in great value a life dedicated to prayer and saturated in Scripture. We believe the Bible holds the key to the narrative of all existence. It's a bold thing. And it's not just a switch you flip on. That's a life dedicated to the things of God. I'm in a Bible study right now, a prayer group with a woman in her late 80s. And she's in this study with me because she's still growing. She's still learning to walk the way of Jesus. She's still knowing that, that he is there for her. But also she's knowing that, that discipleship happens in community, even in her late 80s. It happens as a part of the life of the church, discipleship. God desires that his people move from milk to solid food, and that doesn't happen without intentionality, and it doesn't happen without people serving the church. So, our hope is that we would cultivate a culture of discipleship that is both deep and wide. What does that have to do with service? Everything. If our desire is to cultivate an environment that uh, is wide, that means that we need to prioritize hospitality. We need a dedicated welcome team, ushers and, and coffee and donuts. We need a dedicated ministry, a children's ministry teachers. We need to craft a Sunday morning experience that includes quality music and relevant teachings, all backed by a solid tech team. We need good coffee, fresh donuts, and clean bathrooms. None of that is about being superficial or inauthentic. It is about creating an environment that is welcoming to as many people as possible. 
It's been said that one of the challenges of the church of the 21st century is that there is a gravitational pull for churches to keep people rather than to reach people. And it's also been said that healthy things grow. It's important for us to understand that when we choose to serve on a Sunday morning team, we are on the front lines of evangelism. We are on the front lines of the Great Commission. On the other side of the coin, if we desire to cultivate a culture that is deep, then that means we need to prioritize discipleship. It, we need a team of dedicated elders who pray and study and discern and are and guiding the church. We need house church leaders who craft studies and help groups pray and study together. And we need hopes, hosts who open their homes and allow that to happen. We need a staff who are committed to doing excellent work to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We need preachers who dedicate themselves to studying the word and delivering its wisdom to the people. But just like going wide isn't about being superficial, going deep isn't just about making us smarter. I'm a firm believer in the truth that when God's people come to maturity, the world is changed. With maturity in Christ, purpose is found. Our community is better served. Marriages are healthier. Kids have more opportunities. Businesses create better work environments. When God's people embrace maturity, we're able to serve the poor better. We're able to love our neighbors better. We're able to make the world a better place. That is why the local church is so important. And that is why we're asking you, if you want to be fully engaged, if you want to be all in, that is why we're asking you to serve on a team. If you have your Bible in front of you or on your phones, please turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews is a peculiar book in the New Testament, but one that is filled with rich theology. We have no idea who wrote it. Some think Paul wrote it. Others think it might have been actually a woman in the early church, a leader in the early church. Some think it uh, isn't really a letter as much as a sermon, uh, like a document that was passed around for the purpose of oratory. It's written to a predominantly Jewish audience at a time when the gospel was expanding throughout the Roman Empire. There's tons more that we could say about that, but for our purposes today, it's important for us to see that central to the idea of being one of God's people is the principle that we're not blessed to the exclusion of others. Rather, we are blessed for the benefit of others. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer is encouraging the audience to grow into a life dedicated to Christ. And then they talk about how a vital part of doing that is serving them. The, the chapter begins by saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Uh, apparently, there were some in the early church who wanted to stay in elementary school. They wanted to hear the basics taught to them again and again and again, and they really weren't interested in moving on to solid food. I love how the message translates that. Uh, the message called, uh, translates that, so, so come on. 
Let's leave the preschool finger-painting exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. And then it continues in verse 9, Hebrews 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the, pro- inherit the promises. I love how the writer of Hebrews marries this concept of salvation with the actions of love and service. See, apparently, the things that belong to salvation look like loving other human beings and serving them sacrificially. A few weeks ago, I saw something that got me thinking about my favorite year in music. I asked Amy, and, and, and she said 1824, because that was the year that Beethoven's Ninth was before, first performed. Can't argue with that. For better or worse, though, I said 1969. Beatles released Abbey Road that year. I think that alone might have sealed the deal for me. Also, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Allman Brothers, and the Who all released some of their best work that year. But it was also the year that Johnny Cash recorded a concert for San Quentin Prison. He recorded it in February of 69 and released the the album of the recording in June. Cash had this special place in his heart for those in prison. And listening to the recording, you can just hear him bearing his soul to them and hoping that his his music would bring some joy to their lives. The the album contains what what I believe to be the definitive versions of I Walk the Line and A Boy Named Sue, but, but towards the end of the concert, he begins to sing these old gospel standards. And one of the songs he does was the early 20th century tune, 1902. The old account was settled long ago. The song is about how Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross paid the price for our sins. Our gospel, our good news message, proclaims that there was a deficit between our righteousness and God's holiness. And Scripture tells us that God just doesn't want holiness from us. He wants holiness for us. The problem was that sin places distance between us and our holy God. Now, God can't just turn his back on sin and wave it away like it doesn't really matter. If he did that, he would be a bad God. No, he needed to defeat sin and death and evil once and for all. The problem was that only the pure Lamb of God could take away the sins of the world. So to show us how much he loved us, God took on flesh, he lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death in order to take on your sins and mine and repair the deficit that existed between us and God. So there is nothing we do to earn our salvation. 
it is all a free gift from God. Thus, the old account was settled long ago. The challenge is that we often want to leave it there. We want to put our settled account in our pockets, and we want to walk around like nothing else is expected of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. The problem with this is that the Bible is clear that once a person is saved, then they are to live a life of salvation. Or in the words of Hebrews, they are to live a life filled with the things that belong to salvation. Hang a right from Hebrews and, and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what do we see here? We're called to love one another, but, but why? Because God defined what love is by sending his son to die in our place. Like I said before, that was a gift of free grace because of God's love for us. But this text is saying that once you've received that gift, the right response is to pour yourself out in loving sacrificial service to others because that's what Jesus did. Think about that last line there. No one has ever seen God. Thing is, they have seen you. When you hear the story that I just told you about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, it's not common for God to open up the heavens and say, thanks, Joe, I'll take it from here. No, you heard that message from a human being. Someone who years ago, was sitting right where you are spiritually and wondering if any of this makes any sense. The reason why I responded to it then and the reason why I proclaim it to you today is because I have experienced the love of Jesus Christ, not secondhand, but firsthand through the love and service of those who are in him. Let me say that again. The reason why I responded to the gospel then and the reason why I proclaim it now is because I have experienced the love of Christ, not firsthand, not secondhand, but firsthand through the love and service of those who are in him. When we live out this gospel by loving other people, we desire to do so in thought and word and deed 
by knowing that loving God and loving others are two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without doing the other. I experienced that personally in in powerful ways when I was a, a teenager, when I was in middle school. I came to Christ at a time when it would have been easy for my extended family and friends to avoid us. But they chose a different path. They chose a path of love and support and mercy and and charity. They chose the things that belong to salvation. I saw that. I felt that. You see, I wanted it to be true before I believed it to be true. I saw how Christians treated me, and even more so, I saw how they treated my family. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but I know that I want what they have. I want to give myself to something that matters. I want to give myself to to purpose. There are a, a few core things to making the church work. Ministry team, the elders, staff, people who are involved in house churches, children's ministry, welcome team, production team, meaning what it takes to put Sunday morning together. That's kind of the big four things in a nutshell. And I know full well that many of you are involved in more than one of those teams. And if you're new to our community, by the way, I want you to hear me when I say that it is not my intention to rush you into any of this. I remember when I first came to New Hope, back in the summer of 2003, I had been heavily involved in ministry before that time, and I was newly married. So so Pastor Jason, he took me aside, and he made sure that I knew that it would be wise for me to take a year off. He said, just be a husband. Then after the first year, I joined the worship team, and then I started a house church, then I was invited to preach, and then I joined the elder team, and I went to seminary, and eventually you asked me to be your pastor. But that year of just coming to church and being served meant so much, and in many ways it laid a foundation that I needed to trust that this was the church community that I wanted my family to give their lives to. So... If that's you this morning and you need a season to be served rather than to serve, that is okay. I hope you feel welcome and I hope uh, sermons like these don't make you feel guilty about all the things that you're not doing. That's not my intention. But on the other hand, if you're out there and then you know that you've been on the sidelines for far too long and you've been hesitant to plug in, to get involved, please consider this my invitation to you. I had a conversation with a guy a couple years ago. Common conversation. Happens all the time when I tell somebody I'm a pastor. One of their first reactions is if they're not involved in the church, they, they will usually want to tell me that they're a Christian or that they, oh, I love God or I was raised in the church or something like that. But, you know, I just don't like organized religion and, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in the church. And I'm talking to this guy, and I'm talking about, to him about how much he loves and his community, and he loves his job. And I said to him, man, I, I, I don't necessarily want to judge you on how much you think you need the church, although, of course, in my head, I'm thinking of you need the church a whole lot. But I said, I know this. I know we need you. I, 
I said, have you ever thought about the fact that, yeah, maybe it's not so much about how much you need the church, although you do. Maybe it's about how much the church needs you. If you're frustrated with how the church isn't reflecting the image of God the way that it should, maybe that's God saying, pick up a shovel, (laughs) get to work, serve on a team, be the change that you want to see. I know that's a it's a frustrating thing to see because it, it's a challenging thought. It's very easy to stand off to the side and fold your arms and say, yeah, I can't believe those religi- religious people, they're like that. What I'm asking you is, if you've really felt that grace and that peace from God, if you really feel like God is doing a work in your life, we would just ask that you reflect that love, reflect that joy, reflect that sacrificial service that God gave you back into your church for the work of the world. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to this community. I am just so overwhelmed and thankful for um, the men and women who make up this church, for the children, for the teenagers who make up this church. I've seen um, in incredibly rich ways the way that you have worked through them through teaching and study and, and music and just serving coffee. Father, I am so thankful that you are showing your love through them. I ask that you would whisper in our ears those things that we need to hear this morning about how we can, can grow uh, a posture of service to you. And Father, I would also ask those who are here that, that need to take a break for a few months. Maybe a, maybe a year, maybe a, a season to say, you know what, I need to get right with God for a couple of months and I need to be served. Father, I would just ask that you give people the courage to, to request that and to announce that that's what their intention is. That's okay. Father, in all of this, we desire to be your church, your ecclesia, this growing kingdom movement. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.